both sides were basically told, and certainly the Germans were told, you can't, you, you, there can't be no surrender. You, you, you have to hold this hill at all costs. The commanders even offered incentives, like everybody will get an iron cross and two weeks off if, if you hold this hill. There was not a similar incentive given to the first, second ranger battalion. It was more like, you guys are it. An excerpt from today's guest, who's co-written an account of the World War II Army Ranger Battalion that formed the spearhead for the final push into Hitler's homeland. New York Times bestselling author Tom Clavin is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Gift-giving season is here, and for the military history lover on your list, check out my book about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you purchase the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Welcome back. Before we get into the show, remember to click that follow button on the podcast to be notified of our future fantastic guests like the author we're speaking with today. And thank you. Today's guest has worked as a newspaper editor, magazine writer, TV and radio commentator, and a reporter for the New York Times. He has received awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, and National Newspaper Association. His latest book, co-written with Bob Drury, is called The Last Hill, the epic story of a ranger battalion and the battle that defined World War II. And author Tom Clavin joins us now. Tom, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. Good to talk yeah. to you again. Absolutely. I believe it's your third visit to the podcast. <laughs> I know. You didn't l learn your lesson the first two times, huh? I know. I know. It's, <laughs> I'll have to stop doing this. <laughs> but you just put out such great books. Yeah, and before we get it, you're welcome. And before we get into the book, I want to ask about the initiative that General Truscott spearheaded creating special operators based on British commandos. Uh, General Lucian Truscott was uh, one of the younger generals uh, of the early World War II generation, and I think he was less reluctant than the older ones to try something new. And for the U.S. Army, a ranger company or battalion uh, was was something new. The uh, Churchill really advocated for it uh, on the English side, and English were very aggressively putting together these these special units, special forces. Now, we take that for granted now because of Army Rangers and Navy SEALs and some of the special forces that we have. But this was in the U.S. Army and U.S. Armed Forces in the late 30s and early 1940s. This was considered almost ungentlemanly. Finally, the the early successes of, of Churchill's uh, special forces, uh, you know, persuaded generals like Truscott uh, to to say, we need to do this also. We're going to be left behind in this war. Uh, if we if we don't have the units like this, so he advocated for it, and and fortunately he was not a cry, he ended up not being a voice crying in the wilderness because uh, General George Marshall, who had a lot to say about what went on in the U.S. Army, uh, he he took up the cause too, and he he had observers go over there and 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 participate in some of the uh, actions that were being done with the. Uh, uh, with with the British special forces and and eventually they he decided let's let's try let's give it a try and the, the very first Ranger battalion was uh, the one that's become known as Darby's Rangers. Introduce us though to uh, these Rangers, Second Battalion Rudders Rangers, who are the subject of the yeah, book. They weren't, they weren't Rudders Rangers right away. They were first they were they were the Second Battalion, and they were training in Tennessee. And the there was one problem after another with the commanding officers. Uh, 
they went through a rotation of commanding officers, uh, some because they didn't really seem to know what they were doing. They, they could have been good commanding officers of a traditional unit, but a special forces unit, they didn't quite know what to do with it. And uh, But uh, uh, Colonel Rudder, uh, James Earl Rudder from uh, Eden, Texas, he had caught the eye of uh, one of the top brass. And he, th- he liked the way that Rudder was tough but fair and also a college man and, and, and seemed progressive. And he said, let's let's try. I'm going to send Rudder in there. And Rudder arrived. I think it was around July 1st, 1943. And uh, right away, he, he you know gathered the men around him and, and said, I'm going to make you men. I'm going to make you soldiers. I'm going to make you rangers. And uh, that that began a process that went on for months and months of uh, uh, of, of, of selecting, weeding out, training. Uh, the idea was, a, you know, a typical battalion would, would not be as small as between four and five hundred men. It would be battalions are larger. But he wanted a battalion that was that was sort of more lean and mean and could move fast. And uh, what that also meant is that there weren't a lot of open spots. So if you if you didn't uh, give your all a training and excel in everything you had to excel in, you were replaced. I mean, you were sent back to your old unit or you transferred to another unit. So Rudder was a fair man, but he also had to be kind of maybe it's too strong a word, but kind of ruthless too, because he had to make sure that the people in his unit that were going to end up being sent overseas were the very best that they could be. And they obviously engaged in battles in Europe. Uh, one of those was the Hurtgen Forest battle. Before we get into their actions in the battle, tell us a little bit about that battle and um, any actions they had before that battle. The Hurtgen Forest was a reason. is a reason why the book exist the last hill because uh my co-author bob drury uh while we were finishing up our previous book had lunch with a retired army colonel and the subject of the hurt and good forest came up now bob like many people may have heard of the hurt and forest campaign but didn't really know anything about it you know it's not like d-day it's not like the battle of the bulge it's not like the one of the pacific campaigns but like not like anzio or anything like that and one reason for that is that the Hurricane Forest was a, uh, a, a, a really a, a blood-soaked ground. It was a campaign that dragged on for months and months and months in the fall of 1944. Advances very slow by the Allies against Germany, and mistakes were made uh, about how the how the campaign was conducted. And so Bob got really keen on doing a book on the Hurricane Forest, but I was not keen on doing a book on the Hurricane Forest as a as an entire campaign. I said, let's can we find a story that is within the Hurricane Forest campaign? We can t- there is the overall story we could tell, but let's focus on one particular uh, uh, story that we can relate. And uh, that's when we came across the Second Ranger Battalion. And I should mention the Second Ranger Battalion had received some attention before, uh, not only during the war, but in, uh, subsequently. Uh, there's a, there's a book uh, by Doug Brinkley that was done. By, involving the second ranger battalion but it always centered on d-day because on d-day mm-hmm. the second ranger battalion was tasked with with disabling the guns at point du hawk uh on normandy beach and it's like when that day was over so was the story of the second ranger battalion and as we did some more research we realized that the untold story is that what happened after that uh one of the, the breast campaign for example was very important part of of, of the uh, taking over taking occupied france back but especially what we call Hill 400 and uh, Castle Hill, it's sometimes referred to. And uh, that was really the first hill inside Germany that the Allies needed to take for a number of reasons. 
And so as we did more research on that and found out how important and how desperate that battle was, you really had the elite of the Allied forces in the, in the ranges facing the elite of the German forces. We said, that's our story. You know, we could tell a hurricane forest story as backdrop, but we really want to focus on, on the second range of battalion and, and, the, and the officers and the enlisted men that made up that, that battalion. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, Middle East diplomat and author Ethan Choron joins us to discuss his new book, Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. You know, Benghazi presents a paradox. There was four years of partisan warfare over this event. And yet, with all the noise, and, and I argue because of the noise, we never really got, down, got into the, to the details of who was behind this, what really unequivocally happened there? Where did it come from? As in, it didn't just come out of nowhere. There were antecedents, and I link those antecedents both to 9-11 and to the rapprochement with Qaddafi. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And before we return to the conversation, if you're enjoying the story of special forces in World War II, check out our earlier program, Marine Raiders, the true story of the legendary World War II battalions with author Carol Engel Averett. The World War II Raiders are just a remarkable group of special forces that were trained to go in and do uh, really, you know, your show is called The Point of the Spear, The Tip of the Spear, and that's really what they were. They would go in and do raids, quick, fast traveling, very quickly. They were tremendous hand-to-hand combat warriors. They uh, used their knives, stilettos, and had a lot of very special things, that tactics that they used during the war. It's show 143 from season two, and you'll easily find it in our past episodes. Gift-giving season is here, and for the military history lover on your list, check out my book about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you purchase the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Now back to the conversation. The last hill, Hill 400, I was reading that... uh, the battalion was ordered to hold it to the last man, and the Germans were actually ordered to do the same thing. And uh, that's what made it uh, so brutal. What was the importance of that hill? Was it just getting over and, and breaking through into Germany? What was the importance of holding that hill? For both sides, there was a strategic and psychological uh, uh, aspect to it. For the Germans, it was the first really significant uh, hill observation point. Uh, you know, there, there was a strategic uh, importance to it inside Germany. So, so from a strategic point of view, the Germans wanted to hold that hill because from it they could do they could, you know, their artillery observers could could be more effective. Uh, they they could shoot down at the Allied forces that kept trying to approach. Uh, and 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 the the emotional and psychological value of it. This was their invasion and penetration of the fatherland, and here's where they had to stop that that invasion. You know, they they couldn't. The Allies could get no further. The other reason for the Germans is that that's so desperate to hold it is that from the top of Hill 400, if you looked, uh, you know, towards the German side of things, you could see that there were forces massing in the Ardennes forest, uh, tanks and trucks and men and all kinds of machines and weapons and stuff. That would eventually, as we would come to know, be the Battle of the Bulge, you know, attack. So they were worried if we lose this hill, we might expose that position and our, our surprise factor is gone. 
from the Allied point of view, so, sort of like the same thing. There was a psychological uh, aspect to taking and holding that hill, because you were you were notifying Germany. You know, this is this is the beginning of the end. We're, we've now entered the fatherland, and we're going to take the rest of it as soon as we can. And again, strategically, what's what can you see from that hill? You know, you can first of all get to kick the Germans off of there, which makes our position safer. And second of all, what can you see up there that can help us? You know, go even further in our in our campaign. So, like you said at the beginning, uh, both sides were uh, basically told. Certainly, the Germans were told, "You can't. There can't be no surrender. You have to hold this hill at all costs." The commanders even offered incentives, like everybody will get an iron cross and two weeks off, two weeks of liberty <laughs> if if you hold this hill. <laughs> With the, the, there was not a similar incentive given to the first, second Ranger Battalion. It was more like. You guys are it. You know, we've, we've tried before and we can't uh, we haven't been able to take it. So we're, it's up to the Rangers to do it. The uh, it was no small hill. It was 13 over 1300 feet. Right. Yeah, it was it was not, you know, a little, little bump in the road, uh, no. which made it difficult and, and heavily and rather fortified with bunkers and machine gun nests and, and the German troops themselves. So uh, it was not something where and the other thing I should point out, which is very important, is that. The weather was such uh, at that point. We're talking about the first week in December when the attack on Hill 400 came by the by the Second Ranger Battalion, where the weather was routinely bad. You know, there's a lot of cloud cover, uh, sleet storms, uh, rainstorms. You didn't have the luxury of saying, "I'll call in another airstrike." Uh, so you really yeah. could really didn't have that 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 aspect of planes or small bombers that could able to even soften up the positions. You did have artillery strikes, which turned out to be very very important. For the Allied positions, I mean, the Germans had artillery strikes too, but uh, the 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 ranges were 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 attacking this hill without air support, without giving away too much of of the book because I want people to obviously go out and read it and buy it. What can you tell us about the aftermath of of the battle, uh, without giving well, away the end of the story? It is in a way. I mean, the 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 uh, the battle was the rangers. You know, just alluding to something I said before, the it was the Rangers who finally took the hill, but that was not the easy part. But that was just part of the job. The job was okay. The Germans are going to want it back, so we have to. And and so there were five counterattacks, and finally, uh, the, the Germans just basically ran out of effectives. <laughs> they they just didn't have any more that could that could attack the hill, and just in time too because the 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 Ranger battalion had been decimated by the counterattacks. What happened was the Rangers were finally relieved, and another uh, unit was sent up there to hold the hill. And curiously, even though the, some of the observers on the hill would file reports back to headquarters saying we're seeing an unusual amount of activity off in the woods in the distance, nobody followed up on it. Uh, maybe because everybody's just so exhausted and the weather was terrible, whatever. So unfortunately, the Battle of the Bulge, which I, I believe began December 16, 1944, was able to get underway with it. It was a very strong surprise factor, which is unfortunate because uh, it's possible that if somebody had been reading the intelligence more carefully, that uh, that that attack might have been observed in advance. Right, right. Now, Colonel Rudder had a, a pretty illustrious post-war career. Could you tell us about what he, he did after the war? He did. I mean, Colonel Rudder got a, a good amount of it and deserved attention for for leading the Second Rangers. He was wounded a couple of times himself. He was not somebody that led from the rear. Uh, and uh, after the war was over, he went back home to Texas to his wife and his children. And uh, he uh, was in politics. He was he worked for for private manufacturing. He was also in politics for a bit. He became mayor of the town that he lived in. 
but probably his most well-known position is, um, and he's, of course, stayed very involved in military affairs and, and, and reserves and things like that. Uh, he became a friend of, of uh, Lyndon Johnson and later became president. But he, they were good friends. But his probably his most well-known uh, post-war position was as the president of Texas A&M University. And mm. as people read in the epilogue of the book, uh, the the uh, Texas A&M University under his watch became really grew uh, enormously. A number of students, his programs, uh, uh, and and you you it's not unusual to. Uh, I mean, certainly on the campus itself, there's there are buildings, there are streets named after James Earl Rutter. And uh, he became, you know, certainly one of Texas uh, heroes. I mean, one of the legendary figures of World War II. The book is called The Last Hill, the epic story of a Ranger Battalion and the battle that defined World War II. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show once again. Thank you. And I appreciate your questions. I love talking about the book. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, Middle East diplomat and author Ethan Choran joins us to discuss his new book, Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. You know, Benghazi presents a paradox. There was four years of partisan warfare over this event. And yet, with all the noise, and, and I argue because of the noise, we never really got, down, got into the, to the details of who was behind this, what really unequivocally happened there? Where did it come from? As in, it didn't just come out of nowhere. There were antecedents, and I link those antecedents both to 9-11 and to the rapprochement with Gaddafi. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.